0: What is your favorite part of the Pentecost story? As a Boy Scout, it probably would have been the flames, right? Starting fires. My favorite part of the Pentecost story is the language miracle. And the thing that I like best about that is that it represents a bookend with the story of the Tower of Babel back in... Genesis chapter eleven. It's a it's a bookend that brings that story to completion. As you remember back there in in uh, Genesis eleven, the people of those ancient people built um, built a tower in order to make a name for themselves to make a name for themselves. I suspect that if we dig more deeply and there's, there's 101 sermons that are gonna be spawned by this sermon, so this is one of them that I won't preach, but I just suspect that wanting to make a name for yourself is another way of saying, I wanna get rid of God and be my own master. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And God's response, of course, was to say, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Which some people might say God was getting a little nervous. God was losing control of the situation. But I suspect that it probably had more to do with God saying, these people aren't ready for that kind of unity. They don't know what to do if they're all speaking the same language. So I I need to slow them down so that they'll get there eventually, get there for what I have for them eventually. So he confused their languages. All of a sudden these people that had the same language are speaking tongues of completely different kinds. And it becomes a source of division among them, doesn't it? We know what it's like to this very day to run into somebody that's speaking a different language. Oftentimes we say, well, why don't you speak the language spoken in this country? You're in America. Why don't you speak English? And it becomes a source of division among them. But then along comes the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the book end to the Tower of Babel story. And on the day of Pentecost, there's a reversal of that punishment, that curse. And God, instead of, instead of the human beings wanting to make a name for themselves, God proclaims his name in all of those languages, those many, many languages. I loved how the ladies, when they're reading, started naming the places that the, the Jewish people had come from, and there's just this, all three of them speaking at the same time, naming these countries, these languages, these peoples. God proclaiming his name in all of those languages. Now, because of the division caused by the confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel, human beings have striven ever since to reunite themselves under one common language. We call it the lingua franca. Have you heard that phrase, lingua franca? The lingua franca of this world is English. It's probably going to be Chinese in fairly short order, but right now it's English. And before English, it was French. And before French, it was Latin. And before Latin, it was Greek. And before Greek, it was Aramaic. Which brings us to the story of Mark and the gospel story that he was telling. Mark was Peter's translator. Most likely, Mark was there in Rome with Peter. Peter was imprisoned. He was facing his own martyrdom. And Mark was there to tell the story of Jesus based on the stories that Peter had to tell him. So he was Peter's translator. Peter knew Aramaic. He had grown up speaking that language. But they wanted to be able to communicate to a wider audience. And Mark knew Greek, the lingua franca that was taking over the world at that time. Aramaic had been the lingua franca of the Middle East and of Asia Minor for about a thousand years since the Assyrian kingdom. But now Mark is translating the stories of Peter into Greek, the new lingua franca of the Roman Empire. And when he was telling this story in Greek, he decided for some reason to leave a few Aramaic words or phrases in the story that he was telling. So in... Chapter 5, we hear in the story of Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead, we hear Jesus say, Talitha kum, which means, and it's fortunate that Mark gives us the Greek translation, which is then translated into English for us, but Talitha kum means little girl, I say to you, get up. Another example of Aramaic in the story of Mark is in chapter 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is praying and he prays to Abba, an Aramaic name for daddy. And then Mark translates it, Father, Abba, Father. In chapter 15, while Jesus is on the cross, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then there are two other occurrences which we find in today's text. If you want to join me in Mark chapter 7, we'll run into these as I tell this story, read these verses. As you're finding your way to Mark chapter 7, the chapter begins with one of those familiar confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. It's a running gun battle for three years between Jesus and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and this is no exception. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees had traveled from Jerusalem or Judea north to Galilee in order to meet with Jesus, to gather some more evidence that Jesus was the lawbreaker and the tradition smasher that they believed him to be. So at every opportunity, they engaged him in some kind of a debate, taking him to task, his disciples to task, for things that they were doing wrong, according to the law, that they cherished so, so much. This episode in chapter 7 begins with the issue of ceremonial hand washing. Washing your hands before you ate was one of the traditions that had cropped up over the years after the giving of the law of Moses. And they were arguing that Jesus' disciples were breaking a very important tradition by not washing their hands before they eat. And all of you mothers are in league with them, aren't you? Because you told your kids to wash their hands, although that had different connotations. But the Pharisees are upset that Jesus and his disciples are not holding to this sacred tradition of ceremonial hand washing. And it leads to Jesus lecturing them on the distinction between these traditions of the elders to which they hold so firmly and the commands of God. Jesus draws a distinction between those. Let's pick up the story at verse 9, Mark chapter 7, verse 9. And Jesus continued you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, this is speaking of the commands of God, Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But, you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Korban, and here's One of those Aramaic words, korban, that is devoted to God. Then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. This korban was a tradition. It's a a way of abiding by the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, which has always been Jesus' criticism of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They are defining what it means to be faithful to God and all of these traditions, all of these rules and regulations, but they're missing the boat. They're all about the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. Jesus' disagreement had to do with their slavery to legalistic traditions at the expense of the commands of God and their preoccupation with drawing lines to determine who was in and who was out. These disciples were obviously out because they weren't abiding by the traditions, and they wanted everybody to know that. Their substitution of human tradition for God's command is essentially the same thing that was happening in the Tower of Babel isn't it? The people at the Tower of Babel wanted to do away with God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. And these Pharisees were making a name for themselves by clinging to the tradition. Let's pick up the story in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Gentile, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her, her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord she replied even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs then he told her for such a reply you may go the the demon has left your daughter she went home and found her child lying in bed and the demon gone then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis the Decapolis means the, a region of ten cities, and it's a, a region that was primarily populated by Gentiles. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, "Ephphatha." another Aramaic word, which means be opened. At this the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. I don't know about you, but when I read that phrase and read it over and over and began to ponder that phrase, all of a sudden it dawned on me, isn't that essentially what happened on the day of Pentecost? Those who were deaf because of their inability to hear and understand the language that the disciples might have been speaking could all of a sudden hear in their own languages. And those who couldn't speak these foreign languages, they were mute to people who spoke all of those languages, all of a sudden had the ability by the Holy Spirit to speak words that were intelligible. Jesus's journey from Galilee where the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come to to examine him through places like Tyre and the Sidon and the Decapolis is a lived parable demonstrating that Gentiles like this Syrophoenician woman or the deaf mute man who is presumably a a Gentile were not outsiders anymore. Jesus is saying by his travelogue, captured by Mark here, I'm not going to be boxed in just to the promised land anymore. I'm not going to be the Messiah of just the Jewish people anymore. I care about the burdens of people whose daughters are possessed by demons and who are deaf-mutes. I care about them regardless of whether they're in or out, according to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law following him and doing the will of his heavenly father who happened to be bumbles most of the time right so mark is saying do you want to be part of the birth family of jesus that thinks he's crazy or do you want to be a ragtag a part of this ragtag bumble collection of disciples who are learning one day after another how to do the will of their heavenly father take your choice another device that he uses a number of times is what we've called sandwich stories. You remember starting to tell one story and then inserting another story in the middle and then coming back to that original story. The 12-year-old girl, Jairus' daughter, interrupted by the woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, only to come back to that Jairus story again. A a way of, of telling a story so that Each of these two stories sheds light on the other. You begin to realize there's a connection here that makes the lights turn on in some cases. Another literary device focusing his attention on the persecution and the hardship that Jesus and the disciples faced. The many times that Jesus retreated to the wildernesses or was driven into the wilderness. Wilderness places in our lives are going to be the hardest, most dangerous thing that we can possibly do. And doesn't it help to know that Jesus has been there first? No matter where you are walking your journey these days, Jesus has been there before you. And doesn't that make an incredible difference? Jesus knows what you're thinking, He's no, he knows what you're feeling, he knows what you're afraid of, he knows what's making you sad or happy in those situations. Jesus has been there before you and has provided the grace to help you make it through there triumphantly as well. I've focused our attention on these literary devices so that we can think about our own story and how we might connect it with the lives of our friends, our neighbors, our fellow students, members of our family that don't know Jesus. We have a story to tell, and we might as well make it as interesting, astonishing, and compelling as possible. Amen? I mean, please don't tell me a boring story of how the Holy Spirit has taken hold of your life and transformed everything, because that's not a story you can tell. Mark makes it interesting. He makes it compelling. He makes it exciting. He makes it fast-paced. I've been inviting you for five months now to be praying for one specific person. Might be a neighbor in your neighborhood. It might be a coworker. It might be a student that shares a homeroom with you. It might be any number of people, but I've been asking you to get this person and their life, their habits, their routines, their philosophies into your mind. How well do you know this person? Bring all of that to mind and then pray Number one, that God will provide you opportunities to share your story, to live your story. And that number two, God will give you the words to speak your story, to live your story. Opportunities and words, that's how we're praying. First, God turned the tables on those people back in the Tower of Babel days. First he turned the table by confusing their languages and then God demonstrated his tireless grace by speaking in all languages so that all people would be drawn into God's family, the unity of God's family, God's kingdom come. God proclaims redemption and unity where there was once sin and division. Had he left those human beings alone back there in the ancient days of the Tower of Babel, they would have made a name for themselves. They had built a city where they could provide all of their own needs. They had built a tower to the heavens. Who needs God? God said, you don't understand what you're doing yet. So I'm going to make it hard for you to get along. I'm going to make it difficult for you to cooperate with each other. But someday, one day, I am going to show you a unity that is infinitely better than the unity of just speaking the same language. I'm going to show you a life that's infinitely better than just a life of ruling your own, uh, making your own decisions and determining your own fate. I am going to show you a life, an abundant life, based on the blood of Jesus Christ, brought about in your hearts, your lives, your families, your neighborhoods, your workplaces, your schools, your world by the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Jesus may have spoken different languages from the one that we speak, but he knows how to translate it into words that will transform our lives. Jesus is never lost in translation. Let's bow our heads together. And once again, I'd invite you to get in your mind's eye the face, the name of that friend of yours, that neighbor of yours, the one you've been praying for, and perhaps the one that you've been having conversations with. Certainly the one that you've been modeling Christ-likeness before now for probably longer than five months. Bring their face into your mind. This is a person that Jesus loves profoundly. This is a person whose philosophy of life might be completely different than yours, but this is a person that Jesus loves profoundly. They may say and do things that offend you, but this is a person who Jesus loves profoundly. And this is a, pe- a person that Jesus wants to speak to. He wants to tell a story, a story of redemption and love and grace and abundance. Abundance. And just as he used the voices of his disciples on the day of Pentecost, so God wants to use your voice and your life. He wants to use your story. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we've had over the last five months to have conversations, to live life together. Lord, we pray for more opportunities. In us, you have moved into the neighborhood of this friend, this neighbor. You are filling our minds and our hearts with words to be spoken and love to be lived. Give us the opportunities. And then, Lord, we pray that your power the power that precedes our conversations and the power that follows up our conversations. We pray that your power would transform the lives of the ones that you so love, just as you have transformed our lives. Lord, we love you. Lord, I love you. I thank you for speaking the language of love to my stubborn rebelliousness. Do it again, Father, in the lives of my neighbors. We ask this with confidence in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified and resurrected Lord, who has turned loose his Holy Spirit among us and all of God's children, say,